A lot has happened so far in 2021, and that leaves investors with a lot of open questions for the second half of the year. Today, we'll hear what matters to you. Live from our respective coronavirus social distancing outposts, I'm Lauren Goodwin. And I'm Robert Sarenbetz. And this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we strategists at New York Life Investments will share insights from the multi-asset solutions team, what we think matters as we manage investment solutions. That includes Mainstay's diversified portfolio series, including the Income Builder Fund, as well as bespoke solutions for our partners. By sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of August 9th, 2021. Stop. I can't believe it's already August. I know. And it's been somewhat of a cool summer here in New York. So already feeling like we're winding back down into fall. Time just really passes quickly. But getting to today's episode, today we're going to do something we love, and that is answer our listeners' questions. Yes, a big shout out to our amazing and capable summer interns here at NYL Investments, who have been loyal listeners to the Market Matters podcast every week. And they've also now provided us with some excellent questions today based on our mid-year outlook. Yes, we are excited to hear those questions. And to present them for us, we brought back Unbiko, our analyst on the multi-asset solutions team. So Unbi, welcome back. Thanks, Lauren. You two better gear up because these interns asked some pretty hard-hitting questions. Oh, man, I just want softballs today. Can it just be softballs? Nope, absolutely not. So here we go. Our first one is from Deirdre from Mountainside, New Jersey and is regarding the long-term effects of COVID-19. How do we expect that the pandemic will affect the economy and consumer behavior in the long run? Will investors be less likely to take risks with the memory of the pandemic so fresh in their minds? Lauren, any thoughts? Well, first of all, I, I think it's important to acknowledge that the Delta variant of COVID-19 has emerged as a, a truly credible downside risk to market performance. But this is a risk that we expect could slow the recovery. It's less likely to derail the recovery. And when I think about the consumer experience, this has been a very difficult and scary 18 months for many people, difficult economically as well. But on the aggregate, we're actually seeing some pretty substantial signs of health in the consumer environment. Fed data from the Fed that we saw last week showed that households have accumulated nearly $2.6 trillion in excess savings. And although that savings has built up over time, we're now starting to see that savings rate decline. And those two pieces of data together mean that consumers have been getting out there. They're increasingly mobile. They've learned how to live with the virus. And so we're actually pretty constructive on the consumer environment and on investment sectors related to consumer discretionary spending, especially and services. That said, I do think it's reasonable to question the longevity of the recovery. But instead of thinking too much about the consumer, we're focused on business investment and specifically capital expenditure as the marginal indicator of how much further this recovery has to run. I'm sure we'll talk about corporate profits later in the episode, but the long and short is that companies who have been able to invest in improving logistics or governance or supply chain efficiencies are still printing reliable revenues, which is constructive for the economy, it's constructive for risk assets as well. So we're cautious, but optimistic. 
Great. Thank you, Lauren. Robert, how about you take this next one? It's also from Deirdre. What do you think is the main driver of the current labor shortage? And what steps should be taken, whether by the Fed or the government, to solve this problem? I said softballs only. This is a difficult question to answer, but I'll start with why we want to focus on the labor market. The recovery in the labor market is extremely important to understanding, one, how consumers are going to go back out and do what they do best, consume, supporting nearly 70% of GDP, but two, also the Fed's monetary policy. They are deeply focused on the labor market recovery and ensuring that there is a fair and equitable recovery there. Now, there are a lot of reasons why the labor market recovery is volatile right now. And we could probably spend a whole podcast episode, a whole week of research on this. But I think there's three things to identify. The first is that there are genuine health and safety concerns about working right now as the global pandemic rages on. These are valid concerns. Second, there are very generous unemployment benefits still coming from the state and federal government. Those expire soon. Even so, there's a large cohort of workers where it just doesn't make sense for them to go back to work right now because they don't have reliable childcare or elderly care that offsets the opportunity cost of not working. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics recently reported that nearly 2% of the U.S. labor force right now just simply can't go back to work even if they wanted to because they just don't have those key social structures like childcare or elderly care in place. As investors, I think we want to focus on what would most derail market confidence and consumer confidence. In our view, the thing that would be most relevant for the labor force participation, people being able to go out there and work, is school closures. So if schools reopen in September, that will be another positive development that will help support the labor market into the end of the year. And it's something that's really important to watch. Thank you, Robert. That was a really solid answer to a hard question. All right, shifting gears a bit. We have a question from John, who is from Emerson, New Jersey. With the recent OPEC compromise, global oil production was boosted and the global oil shortage slightly eased. This means that supply is rising to meet the heightened oil demand warranted by a post-pandemic world. And as a result, oil prices dipped following the compromise announcement. However, since then, oil prices have nearly returned to the sky-high levels we experienced earlier in July. So is this appreciation in oil prices a good thing, or is it indicative of mounting inflation concerns? Can I hop on the train that Robert's on where we ask for only softballs? (laughs) Look, I'm not sure that the appreciation in oil prices is is either of those things. It it might not necessarily be a good thing, certainly good for those selling oil, but less good for those who need to buy it. I'm also not sure that it's indicative of mounting inflation concerns. In fact, the causality might be opposite, right? It's the rise in oil prices that then might cause folks to be more concerned about inflation. But just digging into what's happening here, I think higher oil prices reflect probably many things, but two really important ones. The first is that there's been a lot of demand for oil as the economy and production get back to life. Now, this we expect to last for a while, but the consistent upward pressure is likely to fade. Oil prices may therefore be at higher levels, even move a little higher from here. But over the course of the next couple of years, we expect the supply demand imbalances to even out. 
The second thing that's important for oil prices has to do with the supply side. So typically when we see oil prices move higher, more producers will want to come online and, and the existing producers will want to produce more to capture the benefit from those higher prices. But because we're seeing increasing scrutiny of fossil fuels really globally, but on the margin, especially in the U.S., we're seeing some hesitancy for new suppliers to come back online. And that might create a bit of a floor on where oil prices go in the future. So for investors, this comes down to two takeaways. The first is that infrastructure and specifically green energy infrastructure appear to be durable themes, at least even the energy sector is buying into that narrative. And second, the energy sector might be an attractive place for investment. This is an industry that suffered some price declines in recent years so there might be a bit more opportunity moving ahead to leverage some of the higher oil prices that, that help boost revenues in these sectors. This is all really great. Now, I have another question around COVID impact from Meredith, who is from Falls Church, Virginia. How has COVID impacted ESG investing? And for our listeners, ESG refers to environmental, social, or governance investing. Yes, I love the passion behind ESG investing here. Now, as a reminder for our audience, ESG investing uses factors to determine material risks facing a business or a business model. And that includes how a company conducts themselves, their operational strategy to engage with society and the environment and their internal workforce. Even without COVID, there were three trends driving interest here. Three things. LG, you must be so proud. What are they, Robert? Yes, uh, three things always. First is regulations. They're coming globally, and it's going to require that investors and asset managers of funds address the financially material risks that are reflected in a portfolio, including climate risks, social risks, and governance risks. Second, allocators are awarding mandates to the space with an expectation that it's being ESG aligned. So there is capital out there that is seeking out ESG strategies, either to find companies that are mitigating risk or to participate in the upside of some of those new themes that Lauren was talking about, like alternative energy. And then third, lastly, the end investor and consumer preferences are changing rapidly. And that's driving a new expectation from our companies, managers and investors. And these new expectations will eventually impact a company's bottom line over a long enough time horizon through either higher cost of capital, lower revenues, or the higher cost of goods sold. COVID simply, the COVID pandemic simply brought these three trends into focus and gave investors a firsthand example of how these factors eventually become a financial risk over the long term. That's so interesting and leads me to a follow-up question. What are the challenges tied to future ESG growth? There are always challenges with any investment strategy or any nascent trend, industry trend. I think there's two big buckets here. It, it might miss some nuance, but two things that are major challenges. The first is data transparency and materiality. There's a lot of data out there and there's a lack of data out there. So companies don't have a standard way of reporting these environmental, social, and governance risks. And remember, financial markets, they are dynamic and constantly changing. In my lifetime alone, there has been the development of a standard set of accounting principles internationally from which companies can follow. So even if though you had perfect information, still identifying the risks that matter the most is highly controversial. The second bucket regards knowledge and education. I think there's just a lot of misconceptions out there. 
But at the end of the day, how a company is organized, how they conduct themselves, and how they engage with their workers in the environment isn't a far departure away from reality and the way that investment managers have been assessing risk for a long time. That said, I think there is a knowledge gap into some of the minutiae, especially as it relates to environment, like the physical and transitory risks associated with climate change. If I did have a bottom line for our great question here around ESG investing, I think that science and policy are the key parts of a toolkit to address a sustainable transition globally. Capital allocation, though, finance, investing, what we're doing here, is really the third leg of that stool. And investors have a clear and collective role to play in the transition to a more sustainable future. Thanks, Robert. Now, I have a couple questions around our recent mid-year outlook. First, Nathan from Chicago, Illinois, would like to know, while in the outlook, it seemed as if the team suggests to shy away from emerging markets as developing countries might have lower vaccination rates, couldn't this create opportunities in the form of depressed valuations? Why not allocate more diligence to these markets to find opportunities that are relatively cheap? I love this exploration of our outlook. Thank you, Nathan, for, for reading our, our insights and, and such a thoughtful question. Yes, it is important to consider valuations when you're making an investment decision and lower prices can create an opportunity. We, in our process, look at four key factors when making an investment decision and valuations is one of them. The other three are the economic cycle, as well as market momentum and sentiment. And all four of these together are what helps make our decision. And they can be related. They can interact with one another. So just thinking about the core of your question about potentially cheaper asset classes, valuation on its own tends not to be a reliable indicator of investment opportunity in the short term. It can, it can be important in the longer term, but when we're thinking about tactical or six to 12 months opportunities, it, it can be unreliable. And part of that, not all of it, but part of that is because sometimes things can be cheap for a reason. So investors have to be really careful to assess whether lower cost investment options are really a good fit for their goals and their views. Now, in this case, thinking about emerging markets for the next six to 12 months, we're thinking about their economic trajectory, which includes vaccination, which you mentioned, but also an economic slowdown in China and some increasing regulations there that have had an impact on emerging markets performance and their potential trajectory moving forward. And so as a result of that, removed our tactical overweight to emerging markets and are being more cautious in our positioning. But those investors who are interested in capturing an opportunity in emerging markets should consider what you've described, which is that extra due diligence or active management, because each country is different. The virus is different. It causes a lot of dynamics that are interesting to explore, and seasoned managers can help weigh those differences. Our last question is from Kayla from Garnet Valley, Pennsylvania, and she asks such a timely one and perfect for a portfolio pause, the segment of the program where we share an investment idea. She asks, how does the rise in concern over the Delta variant and worries around another lockdown and mask mandates change the mass mid-year outlook? How should investors deal with market volatility and what is the best way to invest during these times? Well, um, it's a great question. And as I mentioned earlier, I do think that the, the Delta variant is a credible risk to market performance. 
but one that we don't expect to derail the economy or the recovery story. So to me, when I think about the impact of the virus on investments, I'm mostly focused on monetary policy and global liquidity and what happens with the virus, how it might impact those things. If the virus means we have to stay at home longer, for example, and the labor force participation improvement starts to slow or even reverse, then we could see a combination of wage spikes in some industries and a depression of opportunities in others. And that's that would be really challenging for the economy if it occurred. The labor market can also impact the Fed and its asset purchase program, which is the global flow of liquidity, which has been really important for asset performance in the last six to 12 months, and I expect will be important moving forward. So that's how we're seeing that interaction and how it might change our outlook if the economy moved in a trajectory that we weren't expecting. And for right now, Lauren, you made this point earlier, investors have really been able to look through the Delta variant so far because corporate profit expectations continue to grow. Since the start of the year, these profit expectations are actually up 22%. And now we're looking at some of the best year-over-year profit growth since following the global financial crisis. Now, moving forward, I think the comparisons get a little bit harder because you no longer have the pandemic lockdown environment to compare your corporate profits to. So the easier part of the recovery is certainly over and finding upside surprises will be more difficult moving forward. But I think there's two ways you can find an upside surprise for this portfolio pause. The first is to focus on asset classes that are more responsive to the reflationary environment. So the value stocks, small caps, floating rate bonds, things that we've talked about before in the program. The second, the winners within asset classes will be those that have efficient supply chains, stronger governance, and can pass higher costs onto the customers, therefore allowing them to navigate some of these bumps in the recovery along the way and generating reliable revenue growth. Well, thank you both so much for your answers. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you to our interns for your questions. Yes, thank you to our interns for their thoughtful questions. And thank you, Unbi, for organizing us today. That's it for today. We'll be back next week with more Market Matters. Let us know what matters to you. If you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on social media. That's right. You can send us your questions or highlight what matters to you by finding us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views on our website, which is newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. And there you can find the mid-year outlook that has been referred to multiple times on today's program. But until then, I am Robert Sarenbetz. And I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamont, and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. Before we jump into our traditional disclosures, we have some added disclosures this week because we talked about ESG investing. Impact investing and or environmental, social, and governance ESG managers may take into consideration factors beyond traditional financial information to select securities, which could result in relative investment performance deviating from other strategies or broad market benchmarks, depending on whether such sectors or investments are in or out of favor in the market. Further, ESG strategies may rely on certain values-based criteria to eliminate exposures found in similar strategies or broad market benchmarks, which could also result in relative investment performance deviating.
I will now read our disclosures from compliance. For more information about mainstay funds, call 1-800-624-6782 for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Investors are asked to consider the investment objectives, risks, and charges and expenses of the investment carefully before investing. The prospectus or summary prospectus contains this and other information about the investment company. Please read the prospectus or summary prospectus carefully before investing. There is no assurance that investment objectives will be met. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which will vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment as at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issue or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as the primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. The mainstay funds are managed by New York Life Investment Management, LLC, and distributed by NYLIFE Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. NYLIFE Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.